Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lagunitas Brewing Company, helping bands reach more ears through beers, because the perfect soundtrack for music is a Lagunitas IPA. Hear more at Lagunitas.com. I'm Bob Boylan with a Plus One podcast from All Songs Considered. This is one of the most seminal underground records of the late 1960s. The band is called Pearls Before Swine, and the album is called One Nation Underground. That song, The Surrealist Waltz, is one of ten songs on this almost forgotten classic. But thankfully, the album is being reissued 50 years after its initial release, and I'm so glad I can turn you on to a classic record you're likely not to know and hopefully will love as much as I do. It's an album that mixed folk music with exotic instrumentation, and joining me to talk about it is Pearls Before Swine singer and songwriter Tom Rapp. I start the conversation by playing the album's opening track called Another Time, as Tom Rapp listens on the line from Florida. Where have you been to? Where did you go? Did you follow? The summer out when the winter pushed its face in the snow. Or have you come by again to die again? Well, try again another time. To my 17-year-old or so self, when I first heard the song, I always kind of thought it was a song about uh, the world and how little the universe seemed to care about anything, certainly not me or us or anybody else. And I, that's my interpretation. Could you tell me about this song and what this song, uh, Another Time, meant to you? It's funny. I, that was the very first song we ever recorded. Huh. Walked into Impact Sound in New York City and the first turned on the mics and... Uh, started recording and that was the first one the, the song came out of uh, a car wreck that's kind of cool wow and uh i was thrown out of an austin healy sprite uh and uh the windshield ended up in the top of a tree i don't know uh, half a mile away and i was beneath just beneath the back tire and uh it, it occurred to me that the universe didn't really care that much about me okay <laughs> and uh and in fact, the uh, police came. I wasn't actually injured. I had like a little scrape somewhere. Wow. And the uh, police came, and I was listening to the police reports as they were taking us uh, uh, to the station. And people were dying all over the place in car accidents and fires and drownings. 
And I said, uh, man, the universe does not care at all. I'm sorry. <laughs> so there's there we have a live report. Huh? Yes. <laughs> some, some people would say, some would say, well, God was looking out for me. I mean, that's another way you could uh, have interpreted, but that, that's not the way. How old were you at the time this car accident happened? Uh, 22, I think. Uh-huh. And uh, so I, I went home and I wrote the song. And then there it was, and I knew I had to uh, go record it with a group called Pearls Before Swine. And we were all set. Well, wait a minute now. <laughs> First of all, that, that's oh, I'm a, skipping. <laughs> I'm skipping ahead. Yeah, yeah. You, you're making huge leaps, which I love, but I want, I'm going to back oh, you up a little bit. Were you writing songs at all at, at, at that age, at 22? Uh, I heard about Dylan. I, I uh, learned how to play uh, Blown in the Wind. Uh, I wrote little sort of protest songs, you know, about the Ku Klux Klan. But other than that, nothing, nothing really real. But this was the first one where I said, here, here's a song that's actually about something here. Uh, at the time, I was listening to Tom Rush and Joni Mitchell and, uh, you know, everyone you should listen to. The, the songs started uh, coming out, and then many of them were rather somber. Fortunately, I didn't have to have a car accident for each one, <laughs> so that was good. That uh, increased my lifespan a little, I think. You were living in Florida at the time, but you is that right, or, or at 22? Yeah, or, yeah. But you recorded yeah, in New York, like, so so help me with that leap right there. I mean, it's one thing to write a song in your bedroom or wherever you choose to write. Yeah, right. It's another thing to have friends to play music with, another thing to have to congeal <laughs> and make something, like, creative. And then the last leap, which back then, recording studios were not cheap. It's not like today where you go to a friend's house and record. So help me a little paint that picture. Oh, well, okay. Uh, yeah, f uh, three friends of mine from O'Galley High School in Florida had a tape recorder, a little old reel-to-reel -reel at our house, and uh, we were just uh, playing folk stuff, and we got this great idea. I had heard of the group The Fugs mm -hmm. with Ed Sanders. Yeah, seminal uh, now, New York band. Now, I can't band. go into, like... I'll, I'll just paraphrase. Yes, the he, seminal New York band, uh, they try to shake things up with the words that they sung and wrote Fair enough. Yes, and uh, rather successfully, I think, for a while, too. But he was also the editor of a magazine called Blank You, a Magazine of the Arts, <laughs> which was uh, a pretty funny darn magazine. So uh, I read about them, and I read about they were with a, a studio called ESP, and most people would think, still do probably, ESP meant like extrasensory perception or mm -hmm. avant-garde or something but it was really a hobby of the guy who ran it, and he was into Esperanto, <laughs> the artificial language. Which and he was... would record stuff in Esperanto, but he also recorded lots and lots of avant-garde jazz. He had, the, he had Sun Ra right. and Albert Eiler and all kinds of people like that, you know, for a good while. We sent them a, we had a hand-cut vinyl that we had done in another town. We sent it to them and said, here, you want to record us. You record the fudge, so you'll want to record us too. And uh, we get back this letter, uh, okay, come on, come on up and record. <laughs> and I swear to God, that's how you did it in those days. And uh, we sent that up and they brought us up to New York and they introduced us to Richard Alderston, who is a brilliant producer. He worked with Dylan a lot. And uh, they gave us four days in the studio and we put the whole thing together in four days, which included the mixing wow. and the stopping and eating uh, uh, hamburgers at uh, Smiler's Delicatessen down the street. <laughs> and 
there we were with a four-day record. And then it came out something like the, it was about the same day as Sgt. Pepper. And it was recorded on four-track, just like Sgt. Pepper was, where all you have are four tracks and you have to mix everything down to four tracks that you can't do anything further with. And then you mix the four tracks all together and you have a, essentially a mono record, just like Sgt. Pepper was, was mono when they put it out. And ours was too, uh, the first uh, of our One Nation Underground record was, was mono, and which it'll be here too. Let me go ahead and play a, a little something else. I'll play a, a bit of uh, the song Uncle John, and we'll come back and talk about oh, that. Thank you. Okay. When the wind winds the platform Blows through your secretion Well, you want us To crucify the enemy for Jesus With your chamber of commerce soul You talk the war so bold God is on our side, but He's lost in your one and I was wondering uh, when you went into a studio, uh, really for the first time, did you sort of just play the songs and capture them, or did you create in the studio? Yeah, well, uh, you know, Richard had brought in uh, Warren Smith, who's a quite a good avant-garde jazz drummer, and the arrangement sort of came out of whatever he did uh, with us. Uh, we, you know, we would discuss these things. We wanted to put, say, an audio oscillator in one of the songs, so we got an audio oscillator and put it in. And we had lots of instruments from all over the world, which they were doing things with at that studio uh, in another, uh, another project. And so we would you know, pick up instruments from all over and uh, just see how it sounded when you put it in there. And, and that so, there's yeah, an instrument. Yeah, I mean, they sort of composed themselves, yeah. There's an instrument in there, that organy sound. Um, I'm not sure if it is, but there's an instrument called a, I think it's called a clavoline that was used in Telstar and um, Runaway by Del Shannon. It's got that kind of piercing Farfisa <laughs> organ sound. I'm right. not sure, sure if that's what that is. I was going to say it sounds like Farfisa yeah. to me. Okay. But. That was something that didn't exist when you were working on these songs in Florida, but but got added right. to the mix. That's what I'm trying to get the picture of, like how much was creation in those four days and how much was just a matter of like, we're going to document these songs because we've already got them well rehearsed. Sounds like a lot of creation. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I can't say they were overly rehearsed. <laughs> uh, we sort of just created uh, from what was around us, and we tried to do a little of everything, like a folk song and a screamer song. And the four of us got together at high school and said, 
hey gang, let's make a cult record. And uh, so that's that's how we got going you on sure that. sure did it. <laughs> but yeah, there really was a little of everything. Somebody said it was sort of like the first cult record of that time, you know, just this, some of this and some of this and some of this. We had no idea what we couldn't do. Four kids from Florida, <laughs> like the Beatles. <laughs> right. There is a, uh, I think, a whole world of, uh, of people who have not heard this record. And I'd, I'd love to paint a picture of the culture of the time. You've so far painted a very uh, vivid picture of, of an innocence that you had, that uh, just a go-do-it uh, attitude, something that really five years previous to that I don't think existed much in American pop culture. It seemed very controlled by people with money, um, a very much yeah. straighter society. Yeah. So describe what it was like, what you were like, what you were into. Yeah, well, at Impact Sound, it was one of those places where people would just come in and out, you know, and say hi. Uh, uh, Ed Sanders would come in from the Fugs and yeah. Wavy Gravy. Yeah. At the time, his name was uh, Hugh Romney. No relation to the other Romneys. And uh, he would wear a, a bright orange jumpsuit and he would evangelize acid. You know, he would say, try some of this, man. That'll be world peace. This is incredible, and it, it it didn't really work out that way. But you know, it would give some to everybody. Were you all you know, people would just, experimenting as a band with that stuff, or or were you a participant? Uh, well, I actually, I mean, it's it's a horrible secret, but mostly I just I smoked Winston's <laughs> and sometimes Salem's. I really didn't even smoke uh, what the kids called uh, marijuana cigarettes. Right. I didn't even smoke that until I think the third album somewhere. Uh-huh. I was just sort of observing the man who fell to earth and looked at the drugs. Right. So a little of everything was there, and I was just fascinated by all that stuff, and I tried to report from the front on all this stuff. And, of course, the, the war was going on. I don't think people remember just so horrible having that thing going on all around us all day long, year after year. And a, an awful lot of people had a sense that maybe it's not the right thing to slaughter children. I mean, in the streets, especially in New York City, it was just Vietnam all the time. It was, it was what you talked about, what you discussed. It was just like this, the saddest sin that was going on at that time and place. Yeah, and people were doing a lot of drug experimenting, but I think people don't realize that a lot of that drug stuff was really sort of experimental and explorative and not just, you know, light me three of those. And it really was explorative and, you know, what, what do I find out if I, if I do this. But I remember Phil Oakes said, you know, let's not just blow it like this. Meaning let it not just be oh, some just, just more, more rec- piece and... of recreation, use it for creativity. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's get something constructive done and, right. uh, you know, help out like we keep thinking we're going to do. People talk of your band as, uh, these days as a psychedelic folk band, though I don't know that I ever remember that term in the day. Do you f- uh, find that is fitting or, or weird? Or <laughs> <laughs> Well, somebody said psychedelic Eastern. I didn't think of it as psychedelic except in the sense of trying out all kinds of new different things that people hadn't, weren't doing yeah. and seeing how it sounded when you mixed it in with the other stuff. You know, we weren't trying to be incomprehensible or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were people who were psychedelic groups and so on. I, we weren't we did this and that. People would feel it was psychedelic, I guess. You can try Morning Song. Okay, let's do a little Morning uh, Song. You know, it has a swine horn in it, which is kind of psychedelic by itself. 
What is a swine horn? Oh, okay. Well, we invented that, but it was using <laughs> two different wooden recorders, the wooden instrument, the recorder, right. that they used from the time of Mozart on, probably, and we would play it at the same time in harmony, two of them at once. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's give a listen to Morning Song, and we'll listen for the swine horn. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Oh, that's it? That's it, yeah. I always thought that was just electronic something, but... Well, it's actually, you know, manual to regular acoustic instruments. Cool. The cold and gross in an hour. The gray wall dwarf leaves high. line about laughing with a lisp you you're one of the uh you're a singer who sings with a lisp is was that ever a self-conscious thing was that hard for you to do or or did you feel free uh, in those days no to, that's good it was no after the record came out i'd see in reviews and stuff and there's this and he's got this lisp <laughs> and i said what are they talking about wow and uh and i just heard it now because i was looking for it mm-hmm. but uh yeah i wasn't really aware of it it was just one more extreme talent that we brought to the music industry, you know. <laughs> you also brought, uh, I'm going to just play a, a tiny bit of this, and you can explain to people what's going on in this song, speaking of talent to the music industry. You're challenging uh, radio in many ways with, uh, with this little number. Oh, yes. Tell people what's about to happen in this uh, Miss Morse song. Uh, okay. The chorus is in Morse code. And uh, I was actually looking for something with a certain beat. And I looked in the Boy Scout manual that uh, one of us had in our house. And uh, I was looking for love, L-O-V-E, you know, dit, dit, da, dit, dit, da. and it didn't work. It wasn't the right uh, assemblage of beats. And so I tried uh, being a musician. I tried F, and it worked perfectly. So it was dit, dit, da, dit, 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 da. Da dit da dit, da dit da, okay, and uh, so that was kind of cool. So we had but the we should have warned people. F and a U. Yeah, and a we should have warned people because you know people out there. The only people in the world who really knew Morse code in those days probably was the Boy Scouts, <laughs> and they'd be sitting there, 
and all of a sudden, it's like, oh my God. And the Boy, the, the Boy Scout masters and stuff, go, oh my God. And so it got banned in some places. But hey, it's in Morse code. What do you want? You know? <laughs> Let me play a little. I love that. I always thought that was so playful. Politics. Let's go back to a song that reflected the powerful times. This is 1967. Oh. We watched daily as the body count from Vietnam came across yeah. TV screens. We were both of age, almost for me, soon to be a draft age. You were of draft age. So many of our friends right. were going off to fight a war that we didn't believe in and just saw our country taking a wrong turn. As a songwriter, what did that do for you? It was a great source of anger. You know, it was like, what can we do about this? And everyone was trying to do something uh, active out there in the streets. And as a songwriter, you thought, well, maybe you can, you can reach somebody and they'll like, think about this and they'll uh, start changing their mind. And it was a very hard time. It was, it was just very sad. Uh, I knew uh, two people who died. And my grandmother was telling me that every year they have a Memorial Day for all the guys from that area that had died in Vietnam. You know, so they talk about him, you know, 50 years later. He should have, you know, had kids and gone bowling. And uh, so it was just a completely wrong and completely dishonest and uh, hard to believe people uh, like voted for it or went along with it. And people uh, started shaking things up and making yeah. noise in the streets and noise in the airwaves and so forth. What Do you have a contribution on this record that you felt... Uh, was toward all of that uh, awareness? Probably just all the screaming on Uncle John. At the end of that screaming, I like fell over on the floor. I used up <laughs> all my breath screaming huh. Uncle John, you know. Who was Uncle John was... to you in this song? Oh, yeah, right. Good idea. I mean, is it Uncle uh, Sam, I we thought, know. But... Yeah, I thought Uncle Sam, and, and at the time it was uh, President Johnson. Ah, I never got that. Let me, let's get the screaming. You never made a penny off this record. Oh, good. Yes, no, we never did. In fact, uh, we just, over the last couple years, we got our rights back from ESP. Because you sold a bunch of records. you have an idea how many you sold? About 250,000. <laughs> and No, seriously. Wow. Because when we, later on, we were trying to do something to get something back, and people in the industry were checking it out. So about, about 250,000, we think. The owner was Bernard Stolman, who ran ESP Disc, and he is now uh, now passed away. No pun intended there, isn't that stole? Uh, no. no and uh, <laughs> he told me the CIA and the mafia were putting all of them out themselves, and they didn't get any money from them, ESP. Uh, and so, of course, they couldn't give any of it to us. Uh, He's saying thought, that somebody was bootlegging their own records. Bootlegging, yeah. And I actually have one of those 
the cover of it you could just tell was cheaply pasted on. So I'm not <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying he's truthful or not truthful, but I know that the record version that I have always looked like a bootleg to me, and I never understood why. It was probably sepia or black and white or something. Absolutely sepia. So that's where all the money went. So there was there was just no money until we finally got attorneys onto it later, after we realized it was uh, almost 50 years. Wow. And he's passed you know. away just a few years ago, uh, Mr. Stolman. Uh, yeah, he's buried upstate. So now we control both of these, and we're going to put out Balaclava sometime next year Which was and have a 50th right? anniversary of Balaclava, yeah. you know. And these days, uh, you're a lawyer, no? Yes? <laughs> yeah. Uh, did the civil rights uh, law. We, I was a, an attorney in Philadelphia for about 20 years. Do you ever get the itch to make music anymore? Yeah, in the 90s, people started showing up wanting to like do interviews and stuff. And I started playing uh, at Terrastock. I don't know if you know Terrastock, but that's a magazine in England. And uh, they would have every year, more or less every year, they'd have a Terrastock festival. And I agreed that I would uh, play at one of those and ended up playing at, at a few. A guy came up to me and he had put together and was just about to release... It was called For the Dead in Space, and it had like uh, 20 covers or something. Uh, people, I was just amazed that anyone even knew these songs. It was amazing to me how, how well-known we were in a, a large secret way. Um, well, One Nation Underground sort of sums up <laughs> uh, <laughs> in many ways uh, who you were as a band. I mean, for those who knew you, uh, madly loved you, and, and uh, an underground back oh. then was the precursor to what people eventually would call uh, college rock or alternative rock or you name it indie rock. I mean, it was a, it was a way, yeah. it was a, a music that uh, was uh, not the mainstream. And it was nice to be yeah, part I of mean, that growing up. Right. Thank you so much for doing this today. And, uh, and congratulations ah. on such amazing music. Oh, thank you. Could I bring up something? Of course you can. Nope. It was just so ironic when we discovered it was 50 years ago. Right. So we're going to put this out again. So that's great. And uh, we're starting to get it together to put it out. And I'm diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and I said, oh, well, that, that fits together. That's very nice. And uh, I was diagnosed with, uh, it's called extramammary Paget's disease, which was in the groin. You know, and it, they had an operation. They took it out. Not the groin, but this this stuff. And then a few months later, it the, came back like little hippity-hoppity, happy little bunnies and started showing up in uh, my pelvis and my sternum and, and uh, all kinds of other just interesting places. And I started getting radiation and uh, chemo. So it's being treated. It's being treated by uh, the medicine they use with Jimmy Carter, uh -huh. where he had a brain tumor just disappear you know, out of his head when he thought he was like at death's door. And so they're working on it. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Pearls Before Swine fans uh, will help me get my last wish, which is uh, that I'd like a pony. Uh, but so anyway, it was just ironic that, uh, you know, we're getting this thing back in the And otherwise I was planning on working on the 100th uh, remastering there. But so I, I think that'll all work out fine, but it's just interesting to have it all happen at the same time, you know? Well, it sounds like you have the right attitude, and I, I sure uh, I, and along with all the other Pearls folks, uh, <laughs> wish you well. Thank you. Yeah, maybe a Shetland. A Shetland pony. Actually. And, and w where do we deliver this? How do we collect and where do uh, we deliver? 
<laughs> uh, it's great talk to you. As, as a also a cancer survivor, I, I really uh, empathize with oh, you, and and and, uh, and it can be okay. So uh, bless you, man. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad you're doing well. I am. Thank you so much. Oh, thank for you. this and all the great music. It's really meant a lot to me in my life and, and oh, so many others. Thank you, man. So Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. Tom Rapp, the creator, singer and songwriter from Pearls Before Swine. The album, One Nation Underground, is out now on Drag City. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music. It's all songs considered. Drop out with me Just live your life Your own skies, your own tomorrow. Don't you worry now, don't you worry. Whole world's in too big a hurry. Just be yourself. No one can step inside your mind from behind If you just walk out Don't you worry, girl Don't you worry Whole world's in bigger Don't you worry, whole world's in today.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. 